welcome to Single at 30, the manual for the modern woman that we are writing together. No topic is taboo as we explore and publicly air the uncomfortable and the unspoken. So, are you in? We actually need to put work into our sexual lives and we have to prioritize it and it has to become something that we put time aside for. In the Western world, sex is literally everywhere, including the magazines we read, the movies we watch, the music we listen to, and the ads we're subjected to. And yet, for many of us, we never learned the basics of sex. On top of this, the stigmas and taboos surrounding female sexuality and pleasure is pervasive despite major strides to change this. The examples we see in mainstream media often teach us to objectify ourselves instead of encouraging us to celebrate our sexuality or express our own desires. Because of this, so many of us find it hard to talk openly about sex or worse, experience feelings of embarrassment, shame or inadequacy, particularly in the bedroom. Things like fear of rejection or performance anxiety or body insecurities or even apprehension to disclose a particular sexual desire or fantasy. And this is no surprise given all the negative and scary messages we received about sex, particularly unprotected sex, when we were growing up, forcing many of us to turn to TV or porn for a more detailed understanding. But to keep silent about sex keeps us ignorant, or in a lot of cases, misinformed. Far too many of us don't know how to talk about sex, as well as sexual health, on a personal level, whether it be with our partners, our children, our friends, or even sometimes our own doctors. Now, more than ever, we need to promote a dialogue about sex that is inclusive of everyone, irrespective of their gender, sexual preferences, or orientation. That is why our guest today is actively using her line of work to not only change the narrative, but also remove the many stigmas surrounding sex. She is a Melbourne-based expert sexologist and the author of The Sex Ed You Never Had. On top of this, she is a love honey and womanizer sexual health and wellness ambassador, as well as a consultant for Bumble Australia. Her work has been featured in articles on news.com.au, Cosmopolitan Magazine, New York Post and Body and Soul Magazine. Having read her book front to back within the space of just one day, I can honestly say it should be required reading in schools. So if you haven't already, do yourself a favor and buy a copy right away. Together in this bonus episode, The Sex Ed You Never Had But Wish You Did, we talk all things sex. My modern women, if ever you've been curious about STIs or rough sex, kinks and fetishes or orgasms and squirting or porn and masturbation or infidelity or labiaplasty or whether size does in fact matter or how to own your single status or maintain desire in a relationship and last but not least, what to do if you've never had sex before, then this is the episode for you. It is with great pleasure I introduce to you today the woman who is changing the game when it comes to sex, Chantelle Odden. Chantelle, welcome to Single at 30, the manual for the modern woman. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I think we've got a lot to talk about today. We definitely do. And I just thought I would start out by telling you that when I was in my 20s, I seriously considered being a sex therapist Mm -hmm. as well as a blogger. So I'm totally in awe of what you do. But for my listeners who don't really know, what is a sexologist and how did you get into this line of work? Yeah, that's a really great question. So basically a sexologist from the way that I work with sexology is I'm a therapeutic sexologist. I basically meet individuals and couples of all genders and orientations and 
they might have like a question about sex or they might have something that's really bothering their sex life or they might want to learn how to have a lot more fun in the bedroom. And my job is to be a bit of a sex detective. So figure out, you know, why they're having any concerns or, or if I can answer any of their questions adequately. And then basically, you know, help them reach their goals, whether they be short-term goals or long-term goals around having a really fun, healthy and fulfilling sex life. Um, And I got into this because I always wanted to work with people and I found it super easy to talk about sexuality. It's something that really isn't off limits in my household. So I thought, you know, I don't want to do like normal generalized psychology, um, even though that's what I'd studied. I really wanted to talk about something a little bit different and, you know, a bit more goal orientated. So my mom sent me a TED talk by Esther Perel, who's a famous psychotherapist. She's very well known. And she was talking a lot about like the nuances of desire and infidelity and And I thought, well, I want to do that, but I want to talk about sex and I really want to have like a clinic and set it up in a really beautiful way so people feel comfortable going there, you know, to to be able to relax and talk about this in a a fun way and hopefully, you know, end up with a really fun sex life as well. Love that. And I am completely obsessed with uh, Esther Perel. She's incredible. I also watched that TED Talk recently and it's on my Christmas list to purchase some of her uh, books. So I completely relate. But in terms of who comes to you for therapy, I'm curious, would somebody who like thinks that they're a sex addict seek you out? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't believe in sex addiction. I think that there can be compuls- compulsions there. But, yeah, you know, if you feel like any, if anyone feels like they have a problem with sex or, and it's distressing them, then, yeah, they're welcome to come in for a session. Can you just elaborate on why you don't believe in sex addiction? I believe in, like, compulsions, but I really believe that naming someone as an addict for the way that they're engaging um, is kind of dangerous. I think, like, having those labels is is not a healthy way of, of looking at sexuality. And I think that um, it can also lead people down the wrong treatment paths as well. So doing things like you know, AA for sexual addiction or sex, sex addicts anonymous, etc. Like these are not, you know, healthy ways to treat sexual compulsions or, or interactions that are, I guess, more intense than, than other people's interactions. I think that the only way that people can get treatment for, um, I guess, distress around the amount of times that they're having sex is really also look at like the underlying causes and I think that if you have that label and it's like you know you're telling people that or people are talking about you and saying blah 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 as a sex addict it's not going to help with recovery at all. I read your book last week and loved it, but I couldn't believe how little I know about sex considering I'm 32 years old. And I just seriously believe your book should be required reading in school. Uh, But what I loved most about it is how it removes a lot of stigmas surrounding sex. So what does it mean to be sex positive? Sex positive is, is really about like viewing sexuality in a healthy way, in a positive way, in a normalized way, you know, and I, I think that 
it's about not shaming anyone for what they find yummy in the bedroom. And it's about being open and curious to everyone's perceptions and associations around sexuality and what is enjoyable for individuals rather than kind of naming sex as, you know, an all encompassing thing that we all have the same kind of preferences and menus and tastes, Um, you know, to not be sex positive is to also, you know, shame people for the way that they feel about sexuality or the way that they engage with sexuality or talk about sexuality or present their sexuality. And I think that we need to be a lot more open-minded and curious about how we are encouraging others to be their authentic selves and be their sexual selves that they enjoy rather than what we want them to look like. Absolutely. I guess this kind of leads into my next question because this is definitely not something I'm proud of, but I have such an irrational fear of SDIs to the point Mm. where like if people talk to me about them, it often makes me feel so uncomfortable and nervous that I feel like fainting. But after reading your book, I feel so much more at ease, which just basically highlights why your book is so important because there's, in my opinion, definitely a lack of proper education surrounding the area. So I'm curious, what would you say to someone or a potential client who thinks that an SDI is a deal breaker or is struggling to cope with their diagnosis? Yeah, I think that the the fear comes down to the stigma. And I think the stigma itself is more harmful than the STI that that person has contracted. You know, the stigma around okay, I have to have these conversations now or, you know, I have to educate people and I don't even feel educated on this topic or, you know, it's basically this is the end of my sex life because who's going to want to have sex with me because I've got this STI. I mean, all of those things are really irrational thoughts, but they're also not irrational in the way that we have been taught that STIs are yucky and that they're gross and that that's the end and you're always going to have it, you know, attached to you. When, when it, you know, we don't shame people for getting like coronavirus or right. getting the flu. <laughs> it's the same thing. It's an infection. And I think that, um, I think that and it's just because we've been so taught that sex is not okay. So to have an extra thing on top of that that further complicates sexuality has been really scary for people. But it's not scary and most STIs, can, uh, you know, can be treated and managed. Um, in fact, all of them can be treated and managed. Then not all of them are curable, but definitely, you know, most of them Uh, just take a round of antibiotics and the rest that are not, you know, it's just about management. And I I don't think that's the worst thing in the world. You know, we have uh, heaps of health conditions that we have to look at and manage over a long-term basis. That doesn't mean it's the end of our lives. It just means that there's just something that we need to be aware of. It's so true. And it's crazy that there is such a stigma surrounding SDIs. So it's a fear-mongering technique. It's basically teaching you sex ed in a fearful way so that you don't, you know, don't actually want to engage in sex in the first place. And if you do, you're always going to be so on edge about protection um, that, you know, you're kind of taking away from the pleasure-orientated point of view when it comes to sexuality. Um, you know, I think that what we just need to normalize is like, it's okay to use a condom. It's okay to get STI checks. You know, it's okay to ask someone, what are your latest results for STIs? If they can't show you, then you don't have to engage with them. You know, I think it's more about the communication side of things and making sure that no one feels shame because what about all the people that do have STIs? You know, we're not going to go around and be like, oh my God, like, what do 
did you do to get that? Some people get STIs from the first time they've ever had intercourse with someone or the first time that they've ever interacted with someone sexually. You know, I have many patients that have got herpes from the first time they've had sex as if you can ever turn around and say that, you know, they're promiscuous or they're out there and, you know, who cares if they are. But I think that that's that's kind of the narratives that we've been taught growing up. And I think it's really such a shame that we've been taught this way of thinking about sexuality. I completely agree. And I think another thing that women in particular are taught is that men are more sexual creatures than we are. But in my experience, the women I know often have a larger sexual appetite than their male partners, particularly now that myself and all my friends are in our 30s. Do you think this is a common misconception? Um, I think that, yes, we've been, well, we've kind of given um, this kind of narrative that that masculine people or penis owners have a higher drive. But I was actually speaking about this with a friend the other day because I was like, you know, there are so many penis owners that have lower sex drives and we just don't talk about it. And he was saying to me, yeah, like our sexual primes like at 18 and then I feel like it just drops off after that. And I'm more like actually I think that penis owners don't get taught that they have to actually prioritise sex and that they need to work hard at it. In fact, none of us get really taught that sex doesn't come, you know, from a spontaneous angle like anymore. I think that we actually need to put work into our sexual lives and we have to prioritise it and it has to become something that we put time aside for. Um, And I think that there are a lot of penis owners out there that are just not willing to do that. Definitely. Back to the sexual peak comment, though. Is it true that men do reach their sexual peak when they're 18 and women reach their peak in their 30s? And if so, why Uh, is that? That seems cruel. (laughs) (laughs) Why is that? It's just hormones. Look, definitely... Uh, for vulva owners or ovary owners when you kind of get to your 30s that's when your biological clock starts ticking and and you know you start getting a a rush of hormones that make you feel like okay it's time for for us to really like start making those babies now um and I'm not saying that anyone actually has to do that it's just that the way that the body kind of starts working um but yeah for penis owners they definitely feel like that is their time and from a hormonal perspective definitely around age 18 is when the hormones are absolutely raging and it it does go down after that but it doesn't mean that your sex life has to go down you know it's a gradual thing and it just takes a little bit of understanding and time and if penis owners are really struggling you know they have to go through a full medical checkup before we go into the psychology of why they're feeling that way. How interesting. So do you think it's a cause for concern if one partner wants to have sex more than the other or if they're into like rough sex, kinks or fetishes and the other is not? No, I don't think that any of those things are concerning. I think they're pretty normal. But do you think it would mean that they're not compatible if one partner is into kinks and fetishes and the other kind of finds it intimidating or doesn't know much about it? Um, it's not about like people are allowed to not know much about it. It's more like, are they open to be, to being curious about it? You know, are they open to learning more about it and seeing if they are willing to engage in it? If they're not, if they brush it off, if they don't want to engage, then yeah, there's going to be some challenges in that sexual relationship, of course. And if one partner has a higher libido and the other person has a lower libido, that's completely normal when it comes to sexuality. And again, it's about 
communication, negotiation, really saying like, this is very important to me and our relationship is important to me. But if I can't have this in our relationship, I'm really going to struggle. And I'm not sure, you know, if you're willing to negotiate on this or compromise on this, but I think that we will need to for the sake of our relationship. That's so interesting. I've never heard the use of the word negotiation in the bedroom before. But I've always been curious, do you know why some people are into rough sex or kinks or fetishes and others aren't? Do you think it's psychological or cultural? Um, no, I think it's just individualized. You know, I don't I don't think it's healthy for me to make a wide sweeping statement about that because um, there's just not enough research on it. And to be honest, there's nothing wrong. I think <laughs> there's absolutely nothing wrong with having kinks and fetishes and, and engaging in, in practices that are outside of this vanilla kind of model of sexuality. I think that we just need to be a little bit more um, understanding of the fact that actually, you know, it's pretty common and and lots of people engage in practices that are, you know, a little bit more, hmm, yeah, a little bit more spicy, a little bit more different. Um, But that's not abnormal. That's actually quite normal. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So Mm. I've definitely suffered from sexiety before. How would Mm -hmm. you describe sexiety and what are some of the common causes? Sexiety could be anxiety around sex. It can be around how it's going to feel, around how you're going to, you know, be present in the bedroom, whether you're going in with a performative mindset or a goal-orientated mindset to, you know, maybe like have an orgasm or, you know, to make your sexual partner orgasm or to look a certain way, to feel a certain way, etc. Um, and it also can be around functioning. You know, am I going to be able to have penetration? Am I going to be able to get an erection? Am I going to be able to, you know, have an orgasm? So these are all things that are, you know, th- around control. And I think that a lot of people kind of get performance anxiety and anxiety around sex because they feel like it's a goal-orientated process and a performative um, process as well. Whereas if people change their mindset and go into sexuality with a pleasure-orientated mindset, then that's going to be super beneficial for them. You know, going in and really thinking, okay, I'm just here to have fun. I'm here to find pleasure in some way or another. That doesn't have to mean I I orgasm. It's really about engaging with someone, engaging with my senses as well. So what do I smell? What can I touch? What can I hear? What can I see? You know, and what does it taste like? And am I enjoying that? Um, I think that if you can change your mindset around what you're looking to experience during sex, then you're going to have a a much better time in the bedroom. It's so true. And I suppose instead of focusing on like the performance aspect or the goal aspect to focus more on like the connection part of it all, right? Like Mm, I feel like we get so stuck in our own individual heads that we forget that it's an act of connection. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. It's really about, well, I mean, there's solo sex and and there's partnered sex as well, but it's really actually about a pleasure connection, if that makes sense. Yeah, yes, absolutely. So for people who do focus too much on how they're not doing it correctly or if their partner is enjoying it, do you have any tips for them on how to overcome their sexiety? 
Yeah, I think it is a little bit of a process and I think that they probably need to spend some time, you know, with solo play as well and really figure out what am I hoping to enjoy here? Do I What do I like here? You know, what feels really good to me? Um, and I think when going into a, an erotic environment, you know, take some time to prepare. So really do things that are going to get you in the mood. Maybe that's having a hot bath or a shower. Maybe that's about putting some lotions and potions on or some nice lingerie. <laughs> you know, maybe that's about putting on a sex playlist so you don't have to be so in your head when you're in there. You can get out of your head and really focus on the music and the rhythm, etc. cetera. Um, I think it's also about, you know, not feeling like you have to reach a goal or rush to the finish line. I really think that people need to take their time a little bit more, you know, enjoy it, really think about what senses am I engaging with in this process as well? You know, how does it feel for me? Do I want, do I want, you know, my sexual partner to touch a little bit to the left or do I want them to go down on me or do I want my nipples pinched? You know, I think it's really about being a bit more open-minded and curious and just trying to stay present in the moment. And you can do that also with like mindfulness techniques with breathing with slow movement as well um and i always encourage people to control their own pleasure so bring the sex toys that you really enjoy into the bedroom with you um so you can control the way that you're feeling as well i just feel like such an obstacle when it comes to intimacy is like how time poor everyone is like when you were listing those things i was like yep love it but like often you're like in a rush and that also gets you stuck in your head you know yeah, 100%. Yeah. And I know you touched on this, but I've always found it so offensive when my partners have experienced erectile dysfunction, like mid-act. Is it something that should be taken personally? I think that's actually really dangerous to take it personally. Every penis owner will lose their erections many times in their life. The reason why it becomes more chronic is it becomes a psychological thing. So I think we just have to come towards our sexual partner from a place of empathy and kindness I mean who cares if they lose their erection you just play with it again be kind and it will come back but porn is such a big part of our culture and sexual education and I know a lot of women who get offended when their partners watch porn do you think that that is something they should be offended over I mean everyone's definition of cheating is is different you know for some people watching porn will be considered cheating um, for others you know it might be around reconnecting with an ex or it might be around, you know, flirting with someone. And at the end of the day, it's about like a feeling of betrayal. I think that your partner watching porn is not a bad thing if you feel like it's disrupting your sex life and it's becoming way too frequent and, and way too too common and your partner's not wanting to engage with you on an erotic level, then yeah, there might be reasons to feel um, sensitive towards it. But again, it's probably you know, down to that question, like, what are you getting out of this? Like, how does it make you feel? You know, what do you, what do you enjoy about it? Um, and I think that that's probably the the question that needs to be asked instead of, um, you know, why, why are you doing this, if that makes sense? <laughs> yeah, definitely. So do you think there should be rules surrounding masturbation in a relationship then? No, no, I think that it's very healthy for people to masturbate in a relationship. And I think that if there are people putting rules on each other, then that's, you know, a form of control. But masturbation is extremely healthy.
I've always been interested in spirituality, so when I learned about tantric sex, it immediately appealed to me. I'm curious, though, what are your thoughts surrounding tantric sex? No, I think it's great. I think it's just another way of of looking at sexuality, and I think that it's it's a practice. I mean, I don't um, I don't know that much about it. I didn't like train in tantric sex, and I think if you can take some time, there's so, so many things that can come out of tantric sex that will make you feel different and new, and you're going to learn a few things from there. So I, I have um, only positive things to say about tantric sex. And what are your thoughts on prolonging or withholding orgasms? Yeah, I think things like edging is like a really healthy thing. Of course, I don't recommend that people do it all the time because then you can, you know, train the way that your body reacts to sexuality a little bit and, you know, that might make it a bit frustrating if your body's like, hang on, you're always prolonging it and now you want to come quickly and I don't know what to do. Um, But I think that it's really healthy and it can really build up an exciting way to look at orgasm and sexuality and I I really do believe in like, yeah, slow sex as well and, and, you know, connecting sex and sensuality. I think that it's really fun. Definitely. And so it's so common for women to struggle with or fake orgasms, whereas men seem to be able to orgasm so easily. Can all women actually orgasm or is that just a myth? <laughs> no, not not every um, vulva owner can have an orgasm. Um, you know, it, it really depends on like the anatomy and the amount of nerve endings that are down there. So there's it's hard with research because when a person says that they can't have an orgasm, you know, people get their their definitions kind of mixed up a little bit. So I get a lot of um, vulva owners coming in saying, I, I can't orgasm. And I go, well, how about when you're, you know, masturbating? And they go, yeah, 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 I can do it when I'm masturbating. I just can't do it with someone else. So it really is also about circumstance too. I also think that a lot of vulva owners expect that they should be having an orgasm through penetration and that's just not possible for you know like only 30 percent of vulva owners can actually have an orgasm through penetration alone so most of the time we need clitoral stimulation to help us get there and that's normal for for all of us who are engaging in sex to to need that kind of clitoral stimulation yeah and is it the same for squirting Mm, look from a biological perspective, everyone has everyone who has like a vulva um, has the capacity to squirt. Wow! Also, just depends on that person and and their circumstances and how they feel about uh, the movements that are getting them to that place as well. Yeah, interesting. And so, I know a lot of women who often feel dirty or depleted post orgasm. Is this something you've come across in your line of work before? Yeah, yeah. There, I mean, there's elements of shame that are mixed in there, and that probably comes down to the messaging that they were taught growing up about sex. Um, there's a lot of people that, yeah, get really tired as well. You get a big rush of endorphins and and hormones, and then that kind of goes away, and you get a little bit sleepy afterwards. That's also pretty normal. Um, and then there's a lot of people who probably have some triggers as well that come up during sex that are are not healthy, um, fun triggers. You know, they're not they're not made to make you feel good. They're there to make you feel shame. So um, yeah, there's a lot of people who go through that, and and that's why you know sexologists like myself exist. Yeah, definitely. So what sort of advice would you give a patient who came to you and said, "I feel depleted post orgasm"? 
Oh, that's a really interesting one. I can't really give advice on that because I don't know the person. You know, right, of it course. really depends. It has to be individualized treatment. I have to learn so much more about their history and and what's going on with them and I guess what their triggers are and and why they're feeling that way as well. And we have to trace it back and go through a lot more of their their history and their associations with sexuality. Yeah. So true. So I read that research suggests that how you feel about your genitals is directly linked to the quality of your orgasms. And labiaplasty surgery is big business these days, both in Australia and internationally. What are your thoughts on labiaplasty? I think that for for a lot of people, um, labiaplasty can be really helpful. You know, that it comes down to functionality. So if you have labia that's really um, bothering you, if it's catching on your underwear, if you don't feel comfortable going to the beach because, you know, you can see it um, or it's hard to kind of fit into your underwear or you don't feel comfortable wearing lingerie or it's kind of folding inwards through penetrative sex. And absolutely, I think that it's okay to go get a consultation with a gynecologist who specialises in in labiaplasty. I think for a lot of vulva owners, though, they just don't know that their labia is really normal. And then it comes in all shapes and sizes and and colours and, you know, hair patterns, etc. So I think that there are a lot of people who feel like they might need labiaplasty that actually don't, you know, that they they just need to kind of look at images of other people's vulvas. And that's why we have websites like Comfortable in My Skin Love and her. Vulva Gallery and Labia Libraries that can they can really help people feel a bit more normalised in the way that their genitals look. So is that what your advice for somebody who doesn't love their vagina would be? Yeah, definitely. Talk about it. You know, go to therapy. Um, You know, we see a lot of people that are referred to us by gynaecologists who who go, you know what, like this person's labia is completely okay and, and it's not bothering them, you know, from a functionality point of view, but they just don't know, you know, how it, it looks. And so... Um, yeah, we just go through these images together and we overcome, you know, what feelings come up with that and if there's any shame or discomfort and and it, it does tend to work out. That's so interesting. And if it doesn't, then they're allowed to get labiaplasty. That's also their prerogative. Yeah, of course, of course. And so obviously penises also come in all different shapes and sizes. Does size actually mm. matter? I don't think size matters. I think it's what you do with the penis or with your hands or you know, with with your mouth or with toys, etc. It's really about the motivation and, and enthusiasm rather than, you know, the size of penis. But yeah, I think for, for some people it will impact them and it will bother them. And for some partners it will. Um, I don't think that size is necessarily an issue because there's a lot of people that have multiple size ranges and sometimes people can be too big and sometimes people can feel like they're too small. But again, it's really about what you can do rather than what you can't do. So true. Whenever I break up with a partner, I take a really long time to sleep with someone else or wrap my head around the idea of someone else touching me again. I feel like this may not entirely be the case for a lot of men, but it's definitely the case for a lot of women I know. Do you think the best way to get over someone is to get under someone? <laughs> Again, individualized. For myself, yes. For you, it doesn't sound like it. I get it, it. There's no kind of sweeping rule on that. It really depends on on the person. But yeah, I definitely believe that having sex with someone else will make you feel a lot more confident and and you know, I, I guess excited about this single time that you're going to be on. 
Yeah, definitely. No, I'm curious because I feel like I get stuck in the post-breakup phase <laughs> for too mm. long and perhaps just, yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't like kind of lingering in that phase. I'm yeah, like, okay, here we are. I want to process my feelings, but I also want to feel good as well about myself. So definitely. I think that it's, fun. it's good to have a bit of fun, you know. Yeah. Nothing's too serious in life. I agree. And so you've been very public about having a fulfilling sex life with your partner, Dylan Alcott, who, for those that don't know, is the renowned Paralympian. How do you define great sex? I define great sex as when you're having fun, feeling pleasure, both feeling engaged and connected with each other and, and you know, coming away from sexuality with a really good feeling. Right. And I read you say, which was actually super romantic, that you knew Dylan was the person you would spend the rest of your life with the moment you laid eyes on him. So does that mean you believe in love at first sight? Yeah, 100%. I do too, but I feel like so many people think I'm crazy for saying that and argue that it's just (laughs) lust at first sight. Yeah, look, I'm not saying that love is going to be easy. I think that it's very, very challenging, but I definitely think that um, loving first at first sight is is really a thing, and I think it's healthy to to see well what do those feelings mean, and and is this person actually compatible with me in the long term? Yeah, go have fun with it for sure. <laughs> and there are a lot of people who don't believe in sex before marriage, mm-hmm. so I'm curious: do you think a strong emotional connection guarantees a strong sexual connection? No, because love and desire are totally different. You know, you can love someone but not desire them. You can desire someone and not love them. It's it's not exclusively related. Um, I think that, you know, it, it is about building on connection and, and really seeing, like, what do I value here? You know, do I just want a relationship that's held together by sex? Probably not. You know, you probably if you're looking for at the long-term goal, you probably want someone that you can have fun with, you know, that you can talk to a little bit. I don't think that partners are meant to be everything to us. I think that they are meant to be certain things, you know, maybe a a great parent, co-parent with you, you know, a confidant, a friend, someone who's, you know, that you can enjoy sex with, etc. But they don't have to be your best friend and, you know, everything to you. I think it's more about like, figuring out what do you accept and what do you want in a relationship and and going down that narrative and seeing how much you're able to adapt with each other and and grow together and and change for the relationship to become stronger. Definitely. And so do you think chemistry can develop over time or is it either there from the beginning or not? No, of course. Yeah, of course it can grow over time. I mean, there's so many people that are friends for years that would never look at each other and, and think, yeah, uh, I desire you. There's, you know, they've, they're like, oh my God, you know, I, I think you're a great friend or I don't even like you. And then it kind <laughs> of gets to a place where they go, oh, hang on, my feelings have changed a little bit. And so I love how in your book you prefer to refer to first-time sex as a sexual debut rather mm-hmm. than popping the cherry or a loss of virginity. What advice do you have for someone embarking on their sexual debut? I think really know like what are you hoping to get out of this experience, you know? What are you what are you hoping to engage with? You know, is it with your own pleasure? Is it just getting it over and done with? Is it about ticking something off your list or is it about being with someone that you love and that you care for? You know, I I think that it's important to really identify what are your motivations here? And then move forward from there and go, okay, well, do I like this person? And I'm, am I willing to have this experience with this person? Because, you know, it's the first time that I'm 
I'm engaging in sexuality. So I probably want it to be fun and memorable in a good way. Yeah, definitely. And so we touched on Esther Perel. Why do you think people cheat? And do you think couples can recover from it? Yeah, of course. I think I think that people cheat for a multitude of reasons. You know, it might be about something about themselves. It might be about the relationship and not feeling like they're being seen or heard in the relationship. It might be because, you know, they love the person that they're with, but the person that they're with is not able to engage in sexuality at the moment. They might be going through a big adjustment period in their life where they're like, who am I? Who do I want to be? And they're accessing a different part of themselves through that cheating. Or it might be they've just accidentally stepped over the line and it's gone way too far. And, you know, they've thought, shit, like, how did I get here? It's, It's not... It's not hard to to step over that line. Sometimes it, it does happen and it's really, I'm not saying that cheating is okay. I'm saying that these things do happen. Um, I think if you cheat once, yeah, I think that it's definitely uh, something that you can work on and hopefully, you know, it can also make the relationship a bit stronger. If it's a common narrative and it's happened a few times, then I think it's probably worth saying, hey, there's a bit of a pattern here. Um, and, you know, I've, I've heard promises that are not being delivered. <laughs> and yeah, I don't really feel safe in this uh, relationship anymore. And so we so often hear about the honeymoon period, and it is so often a shock when it comes to an end. Why does it only last such a short while? And can we get those butterflies back? Yeah, I think so. The honeymoon period kind of lasts for around 18 months, 12, 18 months or so. Um, And then those, you know, endorphins and hormones wear off. Some people can never get that back and just feel like, oh, my God, you know, who am I with now? Like, do I want to be with this person every day? And they really have to make a decision around that. For others, um, they go, you know what, I'm willing to wake up and choose this person every single day and um, I'm willing to work through the hard parts of a relationship and, uh, and yeah, I'm going to make it work and they will get those butterflies back but they have to keep reinventing themselves and prioritizing each other for sure. Um, I think that for a lot of people as well, they have to remember like that we are taught about like relationships from a very much a Disney point of view. Definitely. That relationships are always meant to be easy and it's full of love and excitement all the time. But that's just unfortunately not the case. You know, relationships are tough and they take a huge amount of work and dedication and and no one teaches us how to have those really challenging conversations and what fights look like and how to have a healthy argument and how to repair afterwards. So I think that that's where people get a little bit thrown off. Yeah, so how do we maintain desire in a relationship then? Particularly post-children, because I'm watching a lot of my friends have kids now and I'm like, wow, like you said, this is hard work. Yeah, it's really about prioritisation. You know, usually when you have kids, there's one person who will prioritise keeping the sex life alive and the other person that will focus on the, you know, the energy of the family. And I think it's more about being open and saying, you know what, like I might not feel like this right now, but I am willing to see if I have some type of responsive desire rather than spontaneous desire. So I think there's this expectation that, we're meant to feel it and we're meant to get all those like that rush of like horniness. But actually a lot of time people need to lie down and have a long massage and and go, okay, like I am willing to engage in this. I am willing to like have a really nice time with this and I, I, I will drop into this scenario and enjoy myself. 
How interesting. So do you believe in scheduling sex? Yeah, 100%. I think that it's super healthy for, for you to put some time aside with each other to have a good time in the bedroom. I loved the part of your book that touches on the stigma of being single and how you claim that in some ways it's even more acceptable to be divorced than it is to be single. And I just felt like that was so true. What Mm. advice do you have for women struggling with their single status? Being single is so much fun, you know. (laughs) I think that I don't know why people have such a struggle with it. It's so much fun. There's so much that that you can do that's like enjoyable you know you can spend some time doing all the things that you want to do without having to consider someone else you know and I I, that's what friends are for as well like get yourself some good friends that are willing to come along that on that journey as well you know take the time to discover what you like dress up as your different personalities because we've all got different ones inside us um and enjoy and yes yeah, sleep around a little bit you know sleep with some people enjoy your sex life because when you're in a relationship you you are also tied to to that person if you're choosing to be monogamous with each other so i think it's really important to enjoy and and have a good time and in your book you mentioned you went on dates just for the stories which is something i completely relate mm. to because i was the same what is your craziest dating story I think like the ones that are kind of the craziest are the ones that I was like, okay, like this is just so boring. <laughs> like I've gone on them and I'm like 20 minutes in, I'm like, this is not for me. So I've had to make up some kind of excuse to get out of there. This is, you know, a long time ago. I haven't been single for ages. Um, but, you know, I, I think it it was more about like, okay, well, how do I get out of this situation? And it was usually like, oh, my God, my uncle's birthday is today and I have to go. My whole oh. family's at lunch and I totally forgot. Or like, hey, like you're really nice, but I've, I've just got a call from a friend and I've got to get out of here, that kind of thing. But I believe in being a bit more honest, you know, from now on and just being like, hey, like I'm not really – vibing this I'm gonna I'm gonna leave but thank you so much and I wish you all the best yeah um yeah I think but I've I've gone on many dates that have been really fun I'm you know different countries as well I used to live in Europe so if I'd meet someone like online or like in an airport usually they would live in a different country so maybe like there was a Spanish guy who like flew me to London and we went to dinner at Nobu and then I just like left I didn't vibe him so (laughs) I was like thanks for dinner and thanks for the flight and I'm gonna go see my friends that kind of thing so I love that that's so cool (laughs) (laughs) so you touch on rules for dating in your book as well do you think there is a correct period of time to wait before having sex with someone no, no. You can just you can do what you want. I really feel like it's it's about the feeling, and again, it's about the individual. I I really hate putting rules um, or boundaries or you know markers around what anyone should be doing because it's really none of my business. I feel like women feel a lot of shame around it, though. They've probably been slut shamed. To be honest, like being a slut is a beautiful thing. Go sleep with someone. It's really about what you make it to be, not not what other people make it to be. What do you think classifies a healthy relationship? I think that a healthy relationship is really about like the way that you um, evolve and grow with each other. I think it's about having arguments and sometimes people can have really toxic arguments. It's about how you repair from them and how you, you know, are determined to change post that argument and really like 
see like how can I grow from this rather than project onto your you know your romantic or sexual partner and go you're the problem here actually like acknowledging who am I in this relationship and what am I bringing to the table here and and am I making this more enjoyable or less enjoyable and what can I do to grow here and if you're in a relationship with someone who's not willing to grow and not willing to change no matter how gently or how much you beg them then that's probably not a healthy relationship healthy relationships are all about growth and challenges and overcoming them as a team Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So what do you think are some relationship red flags? I think there's a lot to do with like not communicating very well, being selfish in a relationship, not considering the other person's feelings. I think that there are really unhealthy ways of speaking to each other and we all do it, but if we don't act um, you know, within their relationship's best interest and try and change that, then that's a, a red flag, you know, things like, criticizing the other person or always being defensive or stonewalling them. So not even talking to them when you're upset or, you know, like even things like gaslighting, of course, these are red flags. Um, I think love bombing is also a really big red flag when this person becomes really intense really quickly. You have to be very wary of that because that can lead to, I guess, more exaggerated behaviors that are dangerous in other areas as well. Um, and I think if that person doesn't have their own life and their own things that keep them, you know, with a sense of differentiation from the relationship, that for me is a bit of a red flag because I don't want to be looking after anyone. I want them to be able to look after themselves and join with me in that process. Yeah, so true. With the love bombing, do you believe that a slow burn is better than somebody who comes on too fast and too hard? Um, I think that love bombing is more about like, Uh, trying to influence someone by demonstrating a huge amount of attention and affection, you know, and I think that it can be either positive or negative for some people, you know, it can be possibly part of a cycle of abuse and it's not very, you know, healthy or or good in that matter. Um, I think that, you know, if we want to talk about what the signs of that are as well, it's about, you know, they're they're excessive in their communication and they request constant attention and they demand commitment and they push against your boundaries and and um i think that that can lead to challenges because it means that that person is lacking inside a little bit and and really trying to control the narrative of the relationship so i do think that um i think that it's healthy to have some like, of course, you want to have affection and, and care for that other person and you might be in love very quickly, but I definitely think that we need to be very wary of coming on too hard and too fast because that probably means that that person has has got something that they need to work on within themselves. Definitely. And so this podcast is about creating the manual for the modern woman. What is one piece of advice you wish you knew earlier? I think it's about being non-judgmental and being curious. I think that we were taught to be very judgmental of other people um, and their circumstances and the way that they look and what they sound like and, the you know, the thoughts that they're having. And I, I don't think that that's very healthy. I actually think that we need to be more open-minded, more curious about the people that are, you know, in front of us. And I also think, like, you've got to create a healthy set of boundaries around what your wants and needs are as well. So, you know, really thinking um, 
what do I want out of a relationship? Am I willing to be flexible with this? You know, what are some baseline values and morals that I have? Um, And, you know, what can I also learn from the people around me? So if you're dating someone and it's not going that well or if a relationship ends, like it's not a failure, you have to look at what did you learn from that relationship and what can you do differently in the future? That's so true. Thank you. Chantel, it has been so lovely chatting with you today. I'm curious, what's next for you? Oh, gosh. I mean, I'm going back to Holland in February, which will be really nice. I'm going for a sexology conference there and to see my friends and my family. So I'm super excited about that. Um, I need to be a student for a little bit rather than um, the teacher. So I think that'll be really good. Um, And yeah, for me, I mean, I'm probably going to come out with my own podcast next year that's definitely in the works and I'm I'm just enjoying life to be honest I'm not really I'm not a, a planner I'm a Sagittarius I really believe in just winging things love that but don't you already have your own podcast I've listened to a few episodes I have two podcasts yeah I want a different one as well <laughs> <laughs> all right well I can't wait for that to come out thank you so much for your time today Chantel it's been a pleasure thank you so much enjoy Thank you so much for listening to this single 30 bonus episode, The Sex Ed You Never Had But Wish You Did with the inspiring Chantel Otten. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and hit follow and subscribe. Season four will be dropping next month. So if you have any questions, feedback, or even an episode idea, DM me on Instagram at single underscore at underscore 30 or join the single 30 closed Facebook group to become part of the community where together with other like-minded modern women, we publicly air the uncomfortable and the unspoken. As always, no topic is taboo as we search for answers to the questions most people are too ashamed to ask. This is Single 30, the manual for the modern woman that we are writing together.